Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Telegraph Telegraph. Podcasts I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we bring you updates from the front lines, discuss the appointment of Grant Shapps as the new British Defence Secretary, and analyse Ukrainian drone warfare. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Thursday, the 31st of August, one year and 188 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our associate editor Dominic Nichols, Brussels correspondent Joe Barnes, politics reporter Genevieve Hall-Allen, and PhD candidate at the University of St Andrews and former analyst at the US Department of Defence, Marcel Plichter. I started by asking Dom for the latest news from Ukraine and Russia. Well, hi David. Hi everybody. Hi Christina. So Russian officials say they have thwarted new Ukrainian attacks on Moscow and Crimea after this follows the wave of drone strikes we spoke about yesterday, that wave that was on Tuesday night, early hours of uh, Wednesday morning, that hit targets in at least six six regions deep in Russia. But today, Moscow's mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, he said Russian air defenders have shot down a drone approaching the city. This thing was apparently, well, it was shot down about 60 k's away from the capital but it did. Russian media said it did cause dozens of flights to be delayed at Moscow's at Moscow Air, across the, the I think four airports in Moscow. As a result, so yeah, that's all right. That's nobody hurt. Causes disruption. Makes them think. Russian officials also said a cruise missile was brought down last night heading for Crimea, and two other drones were brought down in the southern Bryansk region. We spoke about Bryansk yesterday. That was one of the regions hit in the in Tuesday night's wave. And that's down south, that's near the border, Bryansk regions down south of Moscow towards the Belarusian and Ukrainian borders. But sticking in Bryansk and um, specifically in the Navlinsky region, which is just south of Bryansk city. So now we're about 40 k's north of the Ukraine border. Russia's governor, governor there said two Ukrainian saboteurs, his words, saboteurs were killed and five others captured during an incursion. 
So this is Alexander uh, Bolgomaz, who said a group of Ukrainian special forces had tried to carry out. Uh, well, yeah, you, know, you can fill in the rest of it yourself. Tried to carry out a series of terrorist acts on military and energy infrastructure facilities last night. I mean, okay. I mean, if you, if they're special forces, that's military. So if it's on military infrastructure, it's, it's not terrorist. Anyway, fine. He said uh, in the course of operational and combat measures, two militants were liquidated. Five were detained three of whom were wounded. He put that on social media. And uh, we should also, so let's go to the east of Ukraine now. Six Ukrainian soldiers were killed. Uh, this happened on Tuesday, but they've only, um, state investigators only put the announcement out this morning. Six Ukrainian soldiers killed when two MI8 military helicopters, they're both, they're quite old, but they're good. They're medium lift helicopters. They, uh, they crashed on a combat mission in the country's east. So the State Bureau of Investigation is examining the, the crash and in particular looking at possible safety breaches during or in preparation for the flight. So it doesn't suggest it was brought down by enemy fire. It suggests it was some kind of or self-induced, either mechanical or, or safe, some safety breach there. But yeah, so no, no further details known on there. And I'll save a little bit of droney maths for later. Thank you very much, Dom. Joe, there's been quite a lot of political and diplomatic news out of Ukraine recently. Could you talk us through some of the events inside the country? Yeah, no worries. Hi, folks. Um, So let's start with President Volodymyr Zelensky, who has decried what he has described as systematic corruption in the medical exemptions given to people to help them avoid military service. As you all know, there is a certain, well, there's not a full mobilisation in Ukraine. There are certain expectations that you can be called up to fight uh, in the military. And recently, we've seen a series of stories about people either giving out, in this case, fake medical exemptions to people or helping them cross the border and leave the country, which is all against martial, the martial law. So Ukraine has been on this sort of like crackdown on graft basically ever since Russia's invasion started uh, about 18 months ago. That's because essentially if Ukraine wants to join the likes of the EU, it wants to join NATO, it has to show that it's ended what some would describe as Soviet-era corruption that still lingers in the system somewhat. So yeah, uprooting that corruption is a a key aim of the bid to join the European Union. So Zelensky said the National Security and Defence Council had considered data showing the extent of false exemptions, bribe-taking and flights abroad, well, people were leaving the country, Uh, there were no flights since February 2022. The investigation of dubious medical exemptions were still being considered, he said, And these are quotes from Zelensky from his overnight address. There are examples of regions where the number of exemptions from military service due to medical commission decisions has increased tenfold since February last year. It's absolutely clear what sort of decisions these are, corrupt decisions. I won't go too much into detail, but we've looked at previously the struggles that Ukraine has in sort of manpower while it doesn't lean towards full-scale mobilisation. Then we have some tales of fake elections, and the Ukrainian intelligence is claiming that it's identified three and a half thousand people involved in organizing upcoming fake elections in towns and villages occupied by Russia. The elections scheduled for next month will essentially help, and these are quotes, Russia legalize its protégés in the occupation authorities. In the temporary occupied areas of Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, and Luhansk. Um, 
Ukraine's SBU apparently said, according to Sky, the security service of Ukraine is conducting a large-scale operation to expose the organisers of pseudo-elections in the temporary occupied part of Ukraine. As a result of operational measures, the SBU has identified more than 3,500 collaborators and their Russian curators involved in the organisation of legal voting. Illegal voting, sorry, not illegal voting. It's unclear what the intelligence service will do with this, but from sort of previous experiences, they will try and expose collaborators on the Ukrainian side who often are left behind when Russian forces leave and areas are liberated. So, And um, I think the most high profile of these in the last sort of 18 months has been the cleanup operation around the city of Kherson when that was liberated and the SBU were in and around the city daily rounding up people who were suspected of working with the Russians while the city was under occupation. Now to Dmitry Kuleba, the Ukrainian foreign minister. He has hit out at critics of Kyiv's tactics in the counter-offensive against Russia. So as we know, there has been a series of sort of American-led briefings, German briefings, that suggest that various people aren't happy with how Ukraine is carrying out its counteroffensive. There are lots of accusations that Ukraine has ignored its Western training. It's not using its NATO sort of donated kit as well as people want it to be used. But quite frankly, we've covered that topic a lot. So I'll just go to Mr. Kleber's words. He said these these critics were spitting in the faces of Ukrainian soldiers and should, and I quote, shut up. Mr. Kleber went on to say, criticising that the the slow pace of the counteroffensive equals spitting in the face of Ukrainian soldiers who sacrifice his life every day, moving forward, liberating one kilometre of Ukrainian soil after another. And that's what he told um, reporters at a meeting of EU foreign affairs and defence ministers in Toledo in Spain, which is happening over the last few days. And then we will end on another politician, the Ukrainian defence minister, Alexei Reznikov. There could be a vote in the Ukrainian parliament as soon as next week uh, to decide on his future. And that's according to the Ukrainian Pravda website. Mr Reznikov said the decision essentially lies with Vladimir Zelensky. On this one, and this also, this decision goes back to Ukraine's attempt to basically stamp out corruption. There has been a lot of sort of investigation into the defence ministry in Ukraine. A junior minister was sacked, uh, I can't remember exactly when, but for basically taking illicit gains from military donations made into the country. Um one of the reasons Reznikov wasn't removed when that was last rumoured was because he has a great relationship with many of his Western allies, mainly Lloyd Austin, the US uh, Defence Secretary, but also the outgoing Ben Wallace, or gone Ben Wallace now, and I'm sure Genevieve is going to talk us through that later. But they, he was kept in place essentially because of the relations he had made with Western partners and his ability to convince them to give Ukraine weapons from well, from Javelin anti-tank weapons now all the way up to sort of fighter jets in the process. And Reznikov and his sort of smiley version of diplomacy has uh, really helped Ukraine achieve some of those. So I'll stop there because I believe Dom has some points to make on that as well. Thank you very much, Joe. Dom Nichols. Yeah, I'll just make the point that I think particularly in a time of warfare, what you look to your defence minister to do is look up and out. So Mr Reznikov, 18 months ago, had one mission and that was to knit together a 
small-c coalition of external supporters for Ukraine, get them together, get them to believe that Ukraine could win and get them to uh, put their hands in their pockets, basically. So so that's what he was he had to do, and you could say he was he was successful in doing so. Many of these same arguments for um, for Ben Wallace, to be honest, which we'll talk about a little bit later. So he was successful in that, but of course he's the he's the defence minister, so whilst the day-to-day running of the um, of the bureaucracy of the Ministry of Defence might have been delegated to others in the organisation, of course he's the, the the buck stops with him. There have been a few bits and pieces under under his watch. I'm told by folk I'm, I speak to that individually each of these sort of corruption scandals or what have you, they weren't they weren't in and of themselves enough to unseat Alexei Reznikov. But you know, all taken together, it was all starting to look at just a little bit untidy. And timing is everything in politics, as you know, many people know listening to this much better than me i've never dabbled in politics i intend to but of course you've got mr pristyko who's the ambassador to london one of the we're not just blowing our own trumpet here but one of the big one of the big supporters um of ukraine so that's a big post to fill so all these things together i'm 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 told it wouldn't be a daft decision to to stick a, a couple of kopecks on um mr reznikov becoming the new ukrainian ambassador to london but we'll see that in the next uh, next few days i would have thought um a couple of weeks maybe so altogether it was maybe the right time you know, he, he almost certainly is not going to be moved on he'll probably resign and look for new opportunities which might spring into his inbox five minutes later and off he comes comes to london just speculation but i think it's interesting that this this is happening and i think it's actually quite interesting that in the middle of a an existential war there is room for president zelensky to think about internal dy- dynamics and politics it's, it shows a that it, you know, arguably that it's not. Um, there's no panic and desperation. They are thinking of the future. They're building structures for the future. And I don't think it's pretty unhealthy that there's a little bit of internal politics coming into these decisions. But you know, I'm straying out of my swim lane there. Um, I think it might be, like I say, worth keeping an eye on Mr. Reznikov to see um, if he goes, how and when, and where he pops up next. Well, thank you very much, Joe and Dom. Let's stay with politics. Genevieve Hall-Allen, thank you so much for joining us. I'm coming over from Parliament to the Telegraph offices. The UK has a new Defence Secretary. What happened this morning and who is Grant Shapps? What should our listeners know? Thanks, David. Yeah, so just over a week after we spoke on this podcast about Grant Shapps, former Energy Secretary's visit to Ukraine, where he announced a a big energy deal to support uh, Ukraine over the winter months, he has now assumed a new role as Defence Secretary. Several in Westminster actually are now looking back at that trip in hindsight and thinking perhaps it should have raised some questions about what's what's just happened. We've known for some time now that that Ben Wallace would be stepping down from the role of Defence Secretary, one that he's held since 2019. Uh, And as we've briefly touched on, you know, he was very uh, well respected in general for for his his role as Defence Secretary um, and in particular um, with respect to to Ukraine. Um, Alexei Reznikov said on on X today, formerly Twitter, he said, I want to thank my friend and colleague um, for everything that he has done for Ukraine while in his position. His energy and dedication have allowed the boldest plans to be realised and have enabled critically needed resources to be mobilised at the right moment. 
But now we've got Grant Shapps, who was Energy Secretary, as I said, stepping up to take on this role. Um, This is, in fact, his fifth cabinet position in 12 months. He's been moved around a lot in recent times. He was Transport Secretary and then Home Secretary, albeit for six days, under Liz Truss, uh, Business Secretary and then Energy Secretary. Also, in the midst of all that, he actually launched a very brief leadership bid to become Prime Minister in the summer of 2022, following the resignation of Boris Johnson, to whom he was who was a, a major um, ally. Um, and actually, interestingly enough, at this time, he, he publicly called for defence spending um, to be increased to 3% of GDP during this brief bid to become Prime Minister, something that Rishi Sunak has rejected and said publicly that he wants defence spending to hit 2.5% at some point in the future. Well, thanks for that overview of Mr. Shapps, Genevieve. Uh, What's the reaction in this country been to his appointment? How can we sort of give our listeners a bit more of a sense of the, are, are people enthusiastic about this and what worries do they have? Well, it's it's generally been seen as somewhat of a a surprise appointment, however, generally also seen as a pretty safe play by the Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, as um, Grant Chaps has been a a loyalist of Rishi Sunak, backing him against Liz Truss uh, last year, seen as a loyalist in the move. However, as our political editor, uh, Ben Riley-Smith, said in his snap analysis this morning, which you can read on our website, Mr Shapps does lack considerable defence experience. And this is something which will come under scrutiny in Westminster and in the media over the next few days. For example, he's not served in the military, unlike his predecessor and former head of the British Army, Lord Dannett, speaking on Sky News this morning about the new appointment, said that Mr Shapps knows very little about defence, which he described as a complex portfolio and added it will take him quite some time to get up to speed. Genevieve, the big question that all of our listeners will have is what does this mean for British support for Ukraine? What do you make of that? Well, there's been a, a, a long period, uh, you know, of, of stability in terms of the position um, that the UK has towards Ukraine because we've had Ben Wallace in, in, in the position of, of Defence Secretary for, for a long time. Um, and obviously that, that there is going to be, that there's, a, there's a change of person at the top. However, Shaps has shown a real commitment to Ukraine and issues surrounding the war in Ukraine throughout his roles and shown just last week with, with this package announced by, uh, while he was energy Secretary. He also announced several things as Transport Secretary and Business Secretary and things like that. And even in the personal sphere, he took in a family under the Homes for Ukraine scheme for a year and wrote in the Telegraph just last week about the impact that that had on him. His visit to Ukraine last week coincided you know, with Ukraine's Independence Day and he said, from energy security to defence, the UK will always stand with Ukraine. And he highlighted in specifically on his announcement, in his announcement on X this morning about his new role, he said, I I'm looking forward to working with the brave men and women of our armed forces who defend our nation's security and continuing the UK's support for Ukraine in their fight against Putin's barbaric invasion. So, I mean, it's obviously going to be front and centre for Grant Shapps, as it has been for, for, for a long time. Thank you very much, Genevieve. Just before we move on to talk about drones, um, any reaction from Dom and Joe, just particularly on this point of, um, of, of British support for Ukraine and what the appointment of Grant Shapps might mean? Yeah, just very quickly for me, I don't think it'll it'll change anything. But there's vast cross-party support here in the UK for support for supporting Ukraine. 
it's it's very much the same in society. So I don't think there's any need for politicians to think differently. Support for Ukraine is not a defence issue here. It's a national issue. And there's no uh, wavering there. The the prime minister and the leader of the opposition have been very clear. So again, there's no need to change direction. And of course, you know, we take take a lot of our our lead from the US. So right now, no need for Rishi Sunak to do anything different. Uh, Grant Chaps is a is the is a political survivor. I mean, he's he's either either a great political survivor or a man of immense talents, having had five cabinet positions in one year. So he will. I, I don't think we should expect any amazing dynamism from him in, in the MOD. He's going to do what what Rishi Sunak wants him to do, which is to steady the ship, don't keep going on about money, and uh, support Ukraine. So I think he'll I think he'll do that. Back to Ben Wallace again. He I think he decided that this time in his career and his life is the perfect moment. His support for Ukraine and getting people around the table a year ago, being a store in that Ramstein process that was kicked off by Lloyd Austin, but you know, very heavily supported by Ben Wallace. He, he absolutely leaned into that. He was around every, I mean, I went with him on a few occasions, all the European capitals. He knew the defence ministers by name, all, all that kind of stuff, all good stuff. Now, that may have, have coincided with a, a potential desire to be the next NATO Secretary General, possibly. Maybe that was part of his motivation. But hey, I don't really care if it was doing the right thing. I'll, uh, I'll only scratch a little bit at the motivation. And I think he, he saw that the last few years of his life as Defence Secretary and the, certainly the last 18 months in this war, he, was the, he felt he was the right bloke at the right time in the right place and therefore where do you go after that he just felt it was sort of time to time to move on so i think i don't think he'd be there's many other ways in the defense fraternity we can throw stones at, at ben wallace but i think in support support of ukraine i think he's he's pretty invulnerable here and i don't think there'll be any change of direction from um from the uk in terms of what we should expect coming out from um from having grant chaps in charge now i don't have a problem with him not having a defense background you know you don't need to be the brightest person in the room you just need to know who the bright people are um, <laughs> I've lived, lived by that through my military career and I continue to do so. So if the guy can take advice from those who are are there, the chief of defence staff, the professional advisor to the defence minister and the prime minister. So if, if you can sit back and say, right, come on, people, tell me how to think about this, not what to think, but how to think about this, then that's fine. People that, that blunder in and say, I know everything when they've read a couple of commando magazines, then, uh, yeah, that's that's obviously onto not a great way to go about it. So, you know, I don't have a problem with him not having a defence background. Let's um, let's see how he does. But I, I wouldn't expect fireworks. Thank you very much, Dom. Joe Barnes, very quickly. Yeah, quickly. I just want to, it's just on the last point that Dom was making. Um, as we've worked very closely with Wallace in various different guises throughout out the last 18 months on board, longer than that on Ukraine, you always got, had a sense that he knew what he was talking about. His sort of military background helped him. He would often refer to... Um, Ukraine's need for deep fires when we were talking about artillery or the ability to hit at long range. He helped devise and push the idea that training Ukrainian soldiers was a good idea because the shells were running bare of what Western countries could give to Ukraine. So I think with his exit, we lose a bit of that sort of foresight ability to look at the tactics, look at the picture on the ground and actually understand it from a military standpoint. But as as said, the the advisors to from the actual military side will no doubt be in Grant Shapps's ear, and they will be telling them exactly what he needs to know. And from the very few conversations I've had with Grant Shapps over the over the years, he's not a stupid guy, so he should take that on board and continue as 
as is basically so yeah fingers crossed and hopefully we'll get to see him out in brussels in october when nato's defense ministers meet for the next time well thank you so much genevieve joe and dom dom i know you have to run off shortly can you tell us where you're going I'm going for coffee. I could tell you where I'm going, but I'll never be invited back. So no is a short answer to that. I've got a little bit of droney mass, though, if you want to hear that before I dash off. Absolutely, yes. I think that might be a good way to introduce our guest, uh, Marcel Plitcher. So, Dom Nichols, do you want to just give us your droney maths for the moment? Yeah, Marcel, please. Um, I'm, I'm afraid I won't be around to, to come back, but please, uh, impress, uh, interested in your view on this. So yesterday I was asking what air defence doing what's Russian air defence doing why are these drones getting through uh, I did an article yesterday it's online now you'll see it about these Australian made cardboard drones or waxed foam drones that have, that have been getting through cheap $3,000 to produce and um, if they're doing some of these if they're wiping out an IL-76 then that's a good return on, in, on investment now how are they getting through probably because they've got a very low radar cross section a quick aside what is radar? Radar, radio detection and ranging. That's what it stands for. So you send radar waves off into the sky. In this example, it bounces off stuff and comes back to a receiver and shows you the location, the speed and the sort of direction of travel of something up there. So if the something up there is able to deflect those radio waves or absorb them, then the return signal is very weak. And it's thought that drones, I mean, they're small anyway, but if they're made out of cardboard or other stuff that's not like metal with sharp edges, it's going to give a very, very small radar cross-section, as it's known, very small radar return. So the air defender sees a very small little blip on his or her screen, and they think it's a flock of birds, which some of these some of these drones might present that kind of radar return as, then you're not going to launch an air defence missile at that. So that might be one reason why they're getting through. Another reason, though, is to a quick little bit of maths. There's many, many different types of air defence, surface-to-air missiles, self-propelled anti-air guns, so on and so forth. So there's a big old family, but generally we think Russia has about 750 systems of different types of air defence, anti-aircraft artillery, however you want to call it. Now, factor in the readiness, i.e. How, how reliable are they? Are they going to work on the day? And the fact that they've been used in Libya, Syria, you know, Georgia, Armenia, Yemen. So we, we could guesstimate they've got about, or well, they started the full-scale invasion with about 500 systems of air, air defence. Now, Oryx, the open source website that documents Russian equipment losses, say they've lost about 200, again, of the whole family, but about 200. Ukraine's defence ministry says 500. So let's take a yeah, the middle of those, let's say 350. So let's say they've lost 350 of these systems since February last year. That leaves 150, which ain't a lot. You know, when you're spreading them across Ukraine, trying to, uh, I mean, that's one reason why they've not got air superiority. And you're also spreading now spreading them across Russia as well. That's the launchers. I think the missiles on those launchers, Ukraine says it's losing between 10 and 20,000 drones a month. Some of those will be brought down, of course, by electronic warfare, but some will be physical kills by missiles. So if the missiles are being used up or the launchers aren't there from which the perfectly serviceable missiles might be fired from, you know, I just wonder, is Russia running out of air defence ammunition or rather is it running out of the air defence capability, either because the launch is not there or the missile's not there or both? So perhaps they just haven't got this stuff. Now, I have it on pretty good authority that the air defence system that was guarding the Peskov airfield on Tuesday night when those uh, alleged, well, supposedly four IL-76s and one TU-22 were damaged slash destroyed, the Russian air defence system guarding that airfield, I'm told, was a ZSU-23-4. I, as you may know, I used to fly helicopters. How do you know when there's a pilot in the room, Genevieve? It's because they'll tell you. 
Yeah, I used to fly helicopters. Go down to the Army, the Museum of Army Flying at Middle Wallop in Hampshire, and the Gate Guardian, as in the, the bit of old clunky metal out the front that, to welcome people in, is a ZSU-23-4. It's an old museum piece. It's really old technology. It has 23-4, is it has four barrels of 23mm guns, so it can, in a phrase I use quite a lot, chuck a load of lead in the air, but you know it's old. It doesn't really work that well if you don't look after it. It's not a state-of-the-art air defence system, and that was what they were using to guard one of their strategic airlift locations. So I just question, have a look at the maths. Marcel, please, I'm interested in your view. I don't reckon they've got much left ammunition or launchers. And I'm afraid with that, I'm going to have to ping off my last round and get out of here. Well, thank you very much. Dom, do have a, an interesting afternoon and do tell us what you can tomorrow when you're back. Let's go to our guest then. It's a pleasure to welcome Marcel Plitschke, uh, former analyst at the US Department of Defence and PhD candidate at the University of St Andrews. Marcel, I don't know if you want to start just by adding to or nuancing some of the things Dom w- was talking about. But I mean, I guess my sort of grand question is, what are your thoughts on Ukraine's drone capabilities and how have they changed over the full-scale invasion? Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, they've changed dramatically. And I think this goes to a lot of what Dom was saying. It was pretty clear early on that Ukraine would need some sort of long range strike capability, something that that can strike beyond the range of conventional art- artillery or high Mars. They had Tachkas, which were a missile, but not a lot of them. And so you saw them turning to turning to drones to do this. I think the first one that at least we're aware of was in, in an attack against the Rostov refinery back in June of last year. So it was very fairly early on in the war that they were starting to experiment with long range drones like this. You know, and since then we've seen a, a steady evolution of of both buying commercial drones and modifying them, receiving them from abroad, like these, like these Australian cardboard drones, and Ukrainian companies making them themselves. So what we're seeing right now is a culmination of over a year's uh, worth of effort and development. So and there's the combined with that is this question of why are they so effective? Because you would think that a cardboard drone would be quite easy to shoot down. And this kind of goes to what Dom was saying, as much as attrition and, and wear and a lack of inventory affects Russia, there's also just the factor of geography. Russia has a lot of air defense compared to uh, other militaries of the world, but it also has a lot of ground to cover. I, I believe the front's 1,200 kilometers, uh, and that doesn't even include potential avenues of approach from across the Black Sea and, and, and Belarus. So there's a lot of ground to cover. And even if they have 500, 600 pieces of air defense, you won't necessarily be able to cover everything everywhere in correct amounts. So even if you have an air defense piece at this airport, and even if it's, you know, I, I know that the ZSU-23-4 is, is considered a museum piece, but it is more than capable of shooting down a, a drone that it can detect, you know, that might not matter if there's two or two or three drones. But, you know, you have factors like how tired are the crew? How fast can they traverse the turret? So these are all these are all factors to consider. The other reason why... Ukraine's drone sort of campaign has been so effective, especially compared to Russia's, is that the targeting is far more focused on the military instead of civilians. So you see attacks on airfields, you see attacks on key sites in occupied Crimea, on, on naval vessels, on, on oil silos. These are attacks on Russia's ability to prosecute the war. And what it's and while it's not a silver bullet or anything like that, it's very challenging for Russia to deal with. And more importantly, it's very cheap for Ukraine to both construct, purchase and use. Can we turn the question around then? What are your thoughts on the Russian side of this, on Russian, on on Russia's employment of drones in the full-scale invasion? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you'd think that you'd think that Russia 
Russia's drone campaign would be more effective, right? Because they've bought Iranian Iranian made drones and and they've used, I believe they've used over over a thousand against Ukraine's since October 2022. And Ukraine had did not have the same kinds of, especially initially, the same kinds of air defense assets that Russia did and the same level of sophisticated systems. But and in addition, Russia also has a, a, a lot of conventional missiles that they used alongside alongside Iranian drones. But they haven't really been as effective. And I think I think that's a really interesting question. It's it, it seems that they're more focused generally since October on striking on using them against civilian targets, not using them against Ukraine's ability to prosecute the war. Early on in, in October, it was not necessarily clear what they were aiming at. Towards winter, it became clear they were aiming at the electrical grid. Then that sort of petered out as, as spring came, and the most recent attacks seemingly had been against grain silos and and Ukraine's ability to export grain. These these are not these are it's bad, right, to have your energy grid attacked. It's bad to have grain silos attacked, and it, it doubtlessly makes Putin feel better, right, to to launch these kind of punitive strikes on Ukrainian civilians. But it doesn't really affect Russia's ability to win the war. Uh, it doesn't attack the the sort of center of gravity for Ukraine. Um, so that's probably, you know, one of the main reasons why it hasn't been as effective. Could we just zoom out for a minute and ask, what, I mean, one of the big things that we mentioned when we talk about drones, and especially the Ukrainian employments of drones, is just how cheap they are. Um, what do you think this means for mil- military procurement around the world if, if these sort of cheap drones like this can be so effective? Yeah, and it is worth pointing out that this isn't. This is the first. You know, this is definitely the largest scale use of drones in a conflict. But it's definitely not the first time that we've seen them. Um, they were very high profile in the war in Yemen, where where the Houthis in Yemen would would fire similar Iranian-made drones towards towards Saudi Arabia, towards the UAE, towards Yemen, and those drones were also inexpensive. And so, what what I think what I think you're going to see is a lot of proliferation of these drones to actors that that wouldn't have been able to afford missiles or other precision weapons all of a sudden you have a a budget precision weapon now what that means for countries like the UK which which already have missiles and have a large budget to to buy more sophisticated platforms you know we'll see there's definitely a movement towards making precision weapons cheaper but at the same time there's there they might want more capabilities they might want more ability to defeat electronic warfare they might want to ensure that uh you know when they strike a target they strike it much more exactly accurately on point, and that that sort of drives up costs. So for sophisticated militaries, we'll see. And then the last point is defending against them, right? Concurrently to the war in Ukraine, there were strikes against coalition bases that had U.S. personnel in Syria from drones similar to those used in Ukraine. And so there's a big question right now in terms of military procurement of how can you get air defense, but also how can you get air defense that is economical to shoot down drones like this? And some people have been pointing to have been pointing to directed energy weapons like lasers and microwaves. Other others have focused on uh, revamping older gun-based systems, uh, you know, that aren't necessarily good for a missile, but are good for something that's slow, like a drone. So that's that's sort of the direction we'll be seeing in the future, I think. Well, well, let's talk a little bit more about that. You've described for us the sort of the journey so far in the full-scale invasion in regards to drones. What do you think maybe we'll be seeing in the next few months, next few years, even of this invasion? Do you think the tactics, the strategy might change? I think I think that the tactics and strategy that Ukraine uses will be determined by sort of the scale and the scale and tempo of production. So if, if Ukraine is is able to continue this this tempo of of pretty routine attacks and then a larger number of drones per attack, 
um, you'll definitely see an expansion both in the damage that's done and in the number of targets. Um, part of the benefit here is is forcing Russia to sort of pull more and more of its air defense away from the front, pull it away from key sites to try and cover everything. So I think I think we'll definitely be seeing a lot more of that over the next year and depending on how long the war continues. For Russia, it's less certain. They're, they're building counterparts themselves. They're attempting to build a factory so that they don't have to buy their drones from Iran. According to the Washington Post, that's been sort of a comedy of errors for them. They don't have the expertise. They don't have forklift operators and, and, and stuff like that. But you know, if they get it up and running, it's likely that they'll also increase the intensity uh, of their attacks. On the same day that as the Ukraine's biggest drone attack two days ago, Russia itself launched as many drones towards Ukraine. So I definitely think that we'll be seeing an escalation in scope and scale of both campaigns. Well, thanks, Marcel. I've just got one more question for you, really. But I don't know after that, maybe if Joe or Genevieve want to jump in as well, because they've, of course, been listening to this conversation, too. Mine would just be just looking back at everything you've seen and talked about today as an an analyst. What would your sort of major lessons that you're taking away from what you've seen be? Is, Is there one big thing or several things that really stands out for you? I think one thing that I keep coming back to is when you're facing a campaign like this, and now both of them are, there's no real solution to it besides an end to the conflict. The I, I wrote an article a while back saying for the spectator saying that it's not just that, that Ukraine needs air defense to stop drones, it's that it's that they also need more conventional systems. And that's because these systems are so easy to produce, they're so cheap, and they're so easy to employ, even for someone with not a lot of technical expertise that we just have to expect to keep seeing them indefinitely in this conflict and potentially in future conflicts where one side can't necessarily afford more expensive conventional systems. So that's, I think that's the, the biggest, broadest lesson we could take from it. Well, thanks so much, Marcel, for your time. Any questions from Joe or Genevieve before we move on? Yeah, I just wanted to ask, what do you think Ukraine's place post-war will be in the drone production world? Because uh, what we're seeing is now, and for various reasons, so Ukrainian soldiers that I spoke to have been involved in the production of like sort of domestic designed FPV drones, um, speaking to people that are more involved in the, the bigger drones like the Beaver and stuff like that. They say they can't rely on basically Western donations constantly, so they need to have their own manufacturing base. But I'm just wondering, post-war, will countries start looking at Ukraine and going, hang on, you have sort of these products and we actually want you to build them and we'll buy we'll buy them from you so i was wondering if that's something that you could see in the future yeah i can see that i can see that in the future but it depends a lot of ukraine's drone production is sort of not not necessarily craft produced but it's very decentralized so and major players in the ukrainian defense industry right like ukroberon prom and, and antonov they haven't necessarily been like leaders in producing drones of all kinds so I think I think the question for Ukraine when the war ends and when they're looking to to revitalize their defense exports will be which of these worked best, which of these uh, are scalable, and which ones can we sell? And I definitely see, at least for longer range drones and and I mean more tactical drones, I think there'll there'll be a lot more competition. For longer range drones, I can definitely see a lot of NATO countries and countries around the world interested in a very cheap precision capability right? Like an ability to strike airfields that are supposed to be defended by air defense for fifty dollars to $70,000. So I definitely think that there's going to be a lot of demand and a lot of interest, even from smaller NATO countries, right? You, like you could see 
maybe Estonia or Lithuania, maybe they don't want to have large stockpiles of, of conventional missiles, but they're comfortable acquiring four or 500 of these kinds of drones as a, as a sort of conventional deterrent, or at least a conventional annoyance. Well, thank you, Joe, Genevieve and Marcel. Marcel, is there anything we haven't spoken about today that you think our listeners uh, should know or understand? Oh, geez. I think we should. I think we should. While we should expect more attacks, we shouldn't necessarily by Ukraine on Russia and Russian airfields. We shouldn't assume that this tempo of attacks where it's been a lot over the past two weeks will necessarily continue. Sometimes there's fluctuations in in production and fluctuations in how leaders are deciding to employ them. And we saw that with Russia's attacks on Ukraine, and we'll probably see those with Ukraine's attacks on Russia. So expect more attacks, but don't necessarily expect them to conform to a schedule. Well, Marcel, thank you so much for your time. That's been really fascinating. Before we go to our final thoughts, and don't worry, Marcel, you've got a few minutes to think of that. Joe, I believe you've got one more update, diplomatic update for all of us. Joe Barnes. There's one that kind of alludes to North Korea and Russia's contacts as Russia goes around its allies looking for help as it, the willing partners to assist Russia in its invasion of Ukraine are dwindling. So the White House has said that it has new intelligence showing Vladimir Putin and King Jong-un, the North Korean leader, have swapped letters as Russia looks to North Korea for munitions to fuel its war in Ukraine. Um, so National Security Spokesman Pentagon John Kirby told a press briefing that Russian Defence Minister Shergoy Shoigu had tried to convince Poignyang to sell artillery and munition to Russia during its his recent visit to North Korea. As we know, there seems to be an abundance of North Korean ammunition. We're not sure how good it is, but we know some of it's been used by the Ukrainian side, probably seized by a Western country under sort of arms embargoes and then given to Ukraine. So Kirby went on to say that Putin and North, the North Korean leader had exchanged letters pledging to increase their cooperation and said that US had intelligence that indicated another group of Russian officials had travelled to Pyongyang after the defence minister's visit. The North Korean and Russian missions to the United Nations in New York have not commented on this, but Russia, uh, Washington has previously warned that North Korea could be one of the countries that would provide more weapons to Russia to basically sustain its forces. So Earlier this month, the United States imposed sanctions on three entities accused of being tied to arms deals between North Korea and Russia. Mr. Kirby said North Korea delivered infantry rockets and missiles into Russia last year and Moscow was seeking to acquire additional ammunition since then. He said, we remain concerned that the DPRK, so that's the name that North Korea gives it to itself, continues to consider providing military support to Russia's military force in Ukraine, referring to this, and I quote, new information. He said high-level discussions may continue in the coming months. And then he went on to say, we urge uh, the DPRK to cease its arms negotiations with Russia and abide by public commitments that Pyongyang has made not to provide or sell arms to Russia. So it's just another one of those stories about Russia going further and further afield to try and replenish its stocks of military supplies. And I will leave it there. Thank you very much, Joe. Let's move to our final thoughts then. Uh, Genevieve Hall-Allen, would you like to go first? Yes, I mean, I, I think uh, my main thought really is that though there has obviously been this change in a major office of state here for Britain, it doesn't seem like it's going to cause a huge amount of 
change in terms of Britain's response and support from to, to Ukraine. Grant Shapps has shown a commitment to, to Ukraine throughout his various roles. It, it doesn't seem like much will change. He is a, a loyalist to Sunak and will not cause, I don't think, many waves between the two of them in his role and in terms of Ukraine policy going forward. Thank you, Genevieve. Joe Barnes. Um, I just want to uh, use this moment to sort of send some condolences to a Sam Nui. He was a 22-year-old student from Birmingham uh, and was also a British volunteer who was killed this week in a Russian mortar attack while fighting with Kyiv in eastern Ukraine. His brother Dan, who has also volunteered in Ukraine, wrote this kind of emotional tribute to his brother on his brother 22 on Facebook, so I'll read that out for you all. I cannot put into words how broken I feel. I also cannot emphasise how proud I am of my little brother. He'd turned, just turned 21 when he decided to answer the call and travel to Ukraine to push back against Russian imperialism. Sam, you gave your life for people you never knew and acted with courage, morality and honour. Not only are you my little brother, but you're an exceptional man, a good soldier and one of the bravest people I've ever had the pleasure of knowing. So, yeah, just a, a, another Britain that, that has died while fighting alongside Ukrainians against the Russian invasion. And we're working on a piece which will uh, be on the Telegraph website later this afternoon, I imagine, in the newspaper tomorrow morning. So I'd keep an eye out for that. And so, yeah, just our condolences to Sam and his family. Thank you very much, Joe and Genevieve. Marcel, as our guest, would you like the very final thoughts? Uh, yeah, so... I think when a lot of people hear about drones and, and what Ukraine's done with drones, I, I think there's often a question of either either why does it matter or how can the UK help? And I think that there are a couple of policy paths the UK can take to to support Ukraine's drone development, either by by negotiating with manufacturers or making those kinds of industrial connections, or as Rishi Sunak pledged some months ago, providing long-range drones to Ukraine. As I understand it, the, that promise has yet to be turned into turned into production or turned into something that can be given to the Ukrainians. So, so there definitely is a role for the UK both in both in the production of drones and in continuing to win this war. Ukraine: The Latest is an original podcast from the Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis, and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest. We'll sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest as soon as it is released, do refer to the podcast apps. If you appreciated this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. And you can contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. As ever, we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest was produced by Giles Gear with additional help from Adelie Pojanon-Ponto. The executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.